Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. We have uh, been talking about this idea of Jesus' house or God's house and how it relates to the Christmas story from the book of Hebrews, the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. If you've been reading along with us and uh, just a reminder, if you're visiting with us on the back of the bulletin every week, we have a little reading plan. We're finishing up reading the Bible together in a year. It's week 50 and That's amazing. Time has really gone by. And if you've been reading along with us, we're almost through the Bible. And if you haven't, just pick it up. Pick it up where it's at. You can download the entire plan and continue along into 2019. It's a great thing to do. Get the word of God in us. So we've been in the book of Hebrews uh, from the end of November into December. The Christmas story is there because it talks about God becoming flesh. We noted how the Christmas story appears really early in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Very early on, talks about God becoming human flesh. Then in the middle of the chapter, about verse 14, it says that Jesus shared in the flesh and blood of humanity. It gets very detailed and continues. The writer said, so that By his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. We've been singing about that this morning. It's the reason that Jesus came to this earth. It's the reason for the Christmas story. In a word, he was born to die, that he might break the power of death. That is the devil. The writer went on, for this reason, he had to be made like us, fully human, in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement or purification for the sins of the people. That's me. I needed that. And that's all of us. It's the ultimate point of God becoming human, becoming like us, coming into this world humbly, he did. Same way we all did, born as an infant, helpless, needing parents, And he went through what it was like to learn and to grow and to experience the highs and the lows of all this world has. And then he gave his life. He gave his life as a sacrificial offering to receive my justly due penalty for sin, to receive all of our penalty for sin and beat the power of the devil, beat the power of death. Then at the open of Hebrews chapter 3, The writer employed this image of houses, two houses, actually, the house of Moses, the Old Testament house of God, if you will, and the house of Jesus. And we've talked about these houses. Last week, we talked about some of the differences between Moses' house, which was the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the the portable temple, if you will, the house associated with Moses moved around And there was constant, never-ending sacrifice in that house. Continual sacrifices had to be made. The sacrifices and offerings, they never stopped. They were never complete. They were never done. Every day 
One in the morning, one in the evening. Extras on the Sabbath day, extras on the new moon days, extras on the festival days. In a year, just the regular sacrifices and offerings, over 1,200. 1,254, if memory serves me correct. There was no rest in that house. There was no rest. Those offerings and sacrifices were continual. No vacation for those priests. No rest. But in the house of Jesus, in the house of Jesus, there is no need for these sacrifices and these offerings. All of that is finished. It is complete. It is done. This is what Jesus did. Jesus won the victory over sin and over death by giving his life. And there's no work we can do. Nothing I can do. I can't work to earn that salvation. I can't uh, buy it. There's uh, no effort I could ever do. There's no effort any one of us could do. So in his house, there's rest. And I love that. I mean, that is a wonderful, wonderful deal, really, that the Lord offered us. And we should receive it. Jesus offers rest from all this sacrifice for sin by his grace. He, he offered it and it's received by faith, by faith alone, believing that what he did accomplished our salvation. And this is the superiority of Jesus' house over Moses' house. Jesus offers eternal rest in his house. Now let's keep these pictures in mind of the, the houses. The house is sort of a backdrop through this letter to the Hebrews. And I remind you that the writer wrote to a group of people that they were somewhat scattered and they had received Christ, but they were getting a little shaky in their faith. Seems they were getting ready to turn away from their faith in Christ. So the writer kept encouraging, and he encouraged them to get in this house, to get, to, to get under Jesus' roof, and to stay with him. So this morning, let's talk about entering this house of Jesus. It is an open house. To say that the house is open, if you said your house is open, it brings some implications to mind, doesn't it? If I say my house is open, someone would believe the door is unlocked, that they could just walk up and walk in. That's an open house. And that is the, do that is the house of Jesus. The door is open to his house. It's wide open. Jesus became human. The Christmas story is that Jesus became human to make a clear path, to open a way for humanity to have a true and eternal relationship and experience the presence of Almighty God that is to come in. But it would be a sad and it would be a tragic joke if the way was cleared, if the path was open and it led to a locked door where you had to pound but you couldn't get in. So at the end of the pathway Jesus laid out, it's an open house. It's an open door. It's not a locked door. There is no barrier barring the entrance to God's presence or blocking a way to a true and lasting relationship with him. So thankfully, it's not the case that Jesus opened a way to a closed door. 
This is, this is another aspect of Christmas. And we should keep it in mind that Jesus came to this earth to establish this house that offers rest, but to ensure that the door is open. And this open door of the house of Jesus, it stands in stark contrast to the house of Moses or this tabernacle. See, the way into Moses' house to the presence of God, it, it was open in this courtyard. And then remember, talked about it last week, there were two rooms in this tabernacle. And the one was called the holy place. But inside that was the holy of holies. God's presence would come down in a visible cloud. It was visible glory. But the way into that presence was blocked. It was blocked by a heavy curtain. It was blocked by a veil. And it separated the two rooms. No one could go in, save for one person. One person could go behind that curtain. And that person only once a year. And that was the high priest. He could only go in one day a year, and he had to make sure he was completely prepared. The people knew the way into the presence of God, but they were barred from entering. And Jesus changed all of that. The Christ child came to change all of that. Jesus opened a new way, and it was because of Christmas and Jesus becoming fully human that we can share in that. He opened the way by giving his body. This writer of Hebrews details it for us. It's such a rich book. In chapter 4 all the way through chapter 10, the writer tells us about the high priest and the sacrifices and all that needed to go on in that old way and how the priest had to deal with sacrifices over and over and over again daily and yearly for the nation. And it was only that one day, only that one day where he offered that yearly sacrifice for the nation that that priest could go in to the holy of holies, that high priest. But the writer goes on to tell us Jesus has become a higher priest, the supreme high priest. And we read lines like this from the end of Hebrews chapter six. I want to share with you just two lines that Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. You heard us singing about that this morning. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. And how could the writer write this, that it enters the, the sanctuary behind the curtain? Because he continues where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever, forever, eternally. Yet Jesus did more than just enter this inner sanctuary behind the curtain because he became fully human and he suffered and felt pain and gave his life. He opened the door for everyone to enter into that inner sanctuary, to enter into his house, to have a relationship with God, to experience the presence of God. And that includes us. Everyone includes us. We get the conclusion in Hebrews chapter 10. I want to share with you verses 19 through 23. It reads, 
therefore, brothers and sisters, therefore, that's based on all that was written to this point about the high priests and how they had to go in to that inner room and give sacrifices and how Jesus has changed it. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. See, in Jesus' house, the sacrifice is done. There is rest. The invitation to rest has been given. It has been issued. And it comes through the sacrifice of Jesus giving his life on a cross. Jesus died to offer mankind a way to deal with sin and the problem, the barrier that it is to keep us from entering the presence of God. Jesus offered his life. Responding to that invitation of Jesus is done with sincere and genuine repentance. Jesus said his words, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This was the human Jesus walking the earth saying these things. He also said there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous who do not need repentance. The doorway to reconciliation and, re- and relationship in the presence of God is wide open and it can be received with a sincere heart that can draw near to God. There are no barriers in the way. Jesus has made the way. He's removed the barriers. He went behind the curtain so that we can draw near to God. That's an amazing thing. And it is no coincidence. It's no coincidence that at the moment that Jesus gave up his life and he breathed his last on the cross and he said, it is finished that the curtain in that old temple was torn from top to bottom in two. The gospel writers, Matthew and Mark and Luke, they document this spectacular moment that had to rock the world of the priests. Their their barrier into this holy of holies had been torn in two wide open. Was it just a coincidence? The The way that God's presence was torn away at the precise moment that Jesus breathed his last? Could we explain that away? No, there is nothing short of a divine plan that could have come up with this. We have a new and living way into the presence, the holy of holies, by the curtain that is Jesus' body. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see the cross? Do you see his broken body? And it's the true curtain. He has opened the way for us. It's sinful humanity that stands barring the entrance into the presence of God. It's our sinful human nature which cannot go into the true holy of holies. But Jesus Christ took upon himself human flesh 
He entered this world humbly, born in a manger, and he lived a human life. And though he never, ever sinned, he was tempted. And then on the cross, he took on sin. He bore it for us. He died for it. And in death, he laid aside that human shell. He put aside that human flesh, but only for a time. Three days later, Jesus reclaimed that body. And that broken body was resurrected to life. And he, he resurrected it and he glorified it. And he ascended with that body, with that flesh, alive to sit at the right hand of God. The broken body and the blood of Jesus tore away any barrier to reconciliation with God Almighty, our creator. And he opened a new And the writer of Hebrews says, living way, because he is alive and he's opened that door. Have you entered the open door to the the presence of God? Do you see it? Have you responded to the invitation? Have you come through that open door? It's the only way. It is the only way to be glorified eternally with Jesus. Now, I know many of you would answer, yes, I've entered. Of course, I've repented for my sin. I've been baptized. I've even been filled with the Holy Spirit. And I believe I've entered into that door and I experienced the presence of God. But does that mean that we are guaranteed a perfect life? Does it mean we're guaranteed a pain-free life? Does it mean that we're guaranteed a a trouble-free life? Does it mean we're free from sin and we can do as we please? No, it doesn't mean that. That's not the case. As Christians, we will experience pain, heartbreaking loss and hurts, difficult trials. The writer of Hebrews was clear to remind his readers of just that. He said, you suffered in prison And you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Why? Because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. Yeah, that's Jesus. That's eternal life. They had an eternal outlook. Or at least the writer of the letter was saying, have that eternal outlook. Outlook. I want to encourage you to have that eternal perspective. The peace and the prosperity and the assurances of God, they're all ultimately directed eternally. Of course, we can pray and God looks after us in this life and we can receive blessings in this life, but ultimately all the assurances, all the prosperity in God is directed eternally and we have to have that eternal perspective. But in this life, on this earth, yeah, we'll feel pain. And when we suffer and when things get difficult, they don't go our way. That's when the enemy steps in. That is when the enemy tries to gain a foothold. And the enemy is mentioned in this letter to the Hebrews called the devil. And the devil's there to tempt us to sin. And Jesus understands that because he walked this earth as a human being and he was tempted to sin. So what does the writer tell us over and over again? And I've 
repeated this to you. Hold on to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus. This writer was well aware of the temptation to sin and reminds us throughout the letter, stay with Jesus. Keep a firm hold on him. Chapter 10, verse 23 that we already read. It's another one of these hold on reminders. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. Temptation does come. Yes, it does. And temptation will come to turn you from Jesus, to turn you away from the one who won your salvation. Temptation to run out of the house. The door's open. And you'll get tempted to be pulled away and run away. So hold on. This author encourages us, stay with Jesus. And then at the end of chapter 10, reiterates, persevere, keep the faith. The last phrase of chapter 10 is, those who have faith are saved. You have to keep the faith, hold on to Jesus. Now that encouragement is not just a simple phrase. It goes into the entire next chapter. Chapter 11, all about faith. Faith of people in the Old Testament. Faith of people like Abel and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and uh, all the prophets and all the other people of great faith in the Old Testament. And that chapter ends saying they all kept their faith even though they didn't have the promise of Jesus, even though they were living before Jesus. They didn't have Jesus, but we do. We do. That chapter 11 closes with these words. God had planned something better for us. Now, I'm glad I'm living post-cross. I'm glad I'm living after Jesus bore my sin and he made that one final sacrifice. God planned something better for us, Jesus. And he offers rest and he makes an open door to the heavenly house that is eternal. So what's the encouragement? Keep the faith. Keep the faith like those who lived before Jesus. If they could live in faith, how much more can we since our Savior has come and died? And that's the context of the opening then of chapter 12. And I want to share a few lines from the open of chapter 12, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, therefore, because of all these who've gone before us with faith, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those faithful, faithful people in the Old Testament, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What a great encouragement. We've come into his house. We've come into his house and we've received that rest. But it doesn't mean that we are immune from temptation. It doesn't mean we're immune from sin. We will be tempted. But we need to receive this encouragement. 
At times we'll be tempted and we'll even fall short in sin. So we're encouraged. Stay with Jesus. There's another line there about staying with Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. See the cross. See the cross and what he's done to a new and open way because you'll be tempted. So throw it off and throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Some of the other English versions of the Bible use words like throw off sin that easily ensnares or impedes or hampers. I mean, it just pictures something that's wrapping around you to pull you away from your Savior. Are you in an ensnaring sin? Are you in a a besetting sin? That's another word that's used. Are you in an impeding sin? We have to think about it. I once saw a sign in front of a church that said this, the Ten Commandments, they're not multiple choice. But you know what? Sometimes temptation comes and suddenly it's nine out of ten. It's eight out of ten. It's seven out of ten. And that's pretty good. Seven out of ten is 70%. That's a passing grade, right? 80% is a B. 90% is an A. So, really, is it it that much of a problem? Well, yes, temptation can pull us into a besetting sin. And it can become an ensnaring, an entangling sin. And they'll have consequences on your life, even if it's one out of ten. That'll be a consequence that's trying to pull you, drag you away from your peace and your rest from the open house, that's Jesus. So what could some of those be? Bearing false witness. A couple weeks ago, I gave an example of how sin might begin to build. And I used this example of, say, cheating on a test, that it begins by kind of peering over someone's shoulder, ah, Yep, it's C. I knew that, right? And it can lead to further and further acts of cheating. Now, yesterday I saw this, this headline. So I didn't have this a couple weeks ago, but it just, just caught my eye. It said, it's, this is exactly it. I saw this headline. It says, paper mill owner details his lucrative academic fraud business. I I scratched my head. I said, what is an academic fraud business? So I just read you a few excerpts from this. It's called Moe's Coursework Completion Services. Moe's Coursework Completion Services makes as much as 21 grand per month writing papers for students at various education levels. Wow. So you can go online to Moe's Coursework Completion Services and order up a paper. Mo hired people. He says, I've got a math guy to do math, a nursing guy to focus on that, a writing guy who does writing. Mo began as a tutor making $75 a day. Now he mes- estimates he makes between six to 700 a day, about 15,000 a month, sometimes as high as 20. So he explained the process in this interview. He charges about $20 per page on average. People send in their assignments. 
He looks at him and negotiates a price. He was asked whether or not he feels remorse for this. Mo responded, I don't know. I've never thought about it. At the end of the day, people are always going to find a way to cheat, no matter what the situation is, no matter what school you go to. Wow. People are always going to find a way to cheat. That's what the world says. Everyone's doing it. It's okay. You're feeling a little stressed out? You call Mo. Right? Well, that's bearing false witness when you turn that in. You know what? It's, it's also really an act of stealing. It's robbing. It's getting something for nothing. It's getting a grade that you really don't deserve. It's robbing that grade. I mean, we get tempted to rob, cheat on our taxes, cut corners. Have you been watching the news about uh, Paris? I mean, they're kind of up in arms about taxes. They're no longer cheating on their taxes. They're going to take over. Uh, They put this green tax in effect, and the whole country is kind of uh, revolted. Paris has been, for the past four weeks, on fire. Yeah, we don't like our taxes. So cheating on the taxes, yeah, everyone can do that, right? But Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. We're tempted. We might even be tempted to rob God. That's easy to do. What is robbing God, you might ask? Will you follow along in the reading plan and make sure on Tuesday, where the book of Malachi is there, four short chapters, full of questions, 21 questions and answers. And one of the questions is, how do I rob God? And he answers in there in Malachi 4. You're withholding from him. And then there's the, the, the seventh commandment. That's one that gets knocked down a lot. You know, the view on marriage in our culture is anything goes. Anything goes. You know, you can date and spend weekends together. Uh, you can live together. You don't have to be married. You can have separate homes and have sleepovers, that kind of stuff. You know, the, the temptation to mimic the culture, though, it's crept into the church. And I will tell you this. Every one of our ministers has had to deal with this at one time or another to address the issue of a couple who's decided, hey, this is all right for us. We do have, yeah, every weekend I'm over there. Don't, please, don't give me grief. Or we're going to live together and not be married. And we have to counsel people. And we don't counsel out of a motivation of judgment or any, we, it's out of love to keep people from sin and going against God's word and ultimately death and going to hell. I mean, this is our motivation when we counsel people. As pastors, the word of God tells us in this letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 17, that we are here to look after souls and we are going to give an account. I'm going to give an account So I want to do my best to honor God's word, as does every pastor on our staff. So we're going to counsel against sin and going to hell. So how do we do that biblically? Hey, the woman at the well, Jesus said, you've had five husbands, but the man you're with now is not your husband. Or the woman caught in the very act of adultery. Jesus said, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. And there's other lines of scripture. We, 
We can go to the word of God that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed. These are not, imp- these are not proper among God's holy people. Can't give a hint or an appearance of sin. You know, Paul also advised this. God will not be mocked. You know, if we're cheating, if we're lying, God will not be mocked. You reap what you sow. And Jesus said, don't put the Lord to the test. We've counseled this way biblically with the word of truth. And our hearts are that people would receive it. Sometimes they don't to their own detriment. I I received a letter from one. And I'll just give you some excerpts, no names or anything. It said, I've been a Christian for 15 years. When we talked about my living situation, I didn't lie. During our discussion, you referenced adultery. Who are you to judge? This was not advice about my life. This was judgment. This was accusation toward the person I am. Now I only have two choices, to live separately or get married. But we are committed to each other in every way. This is not God. This is you and your interpretation. I am walking away. It's hard to read. I am walking away. I will turn to another church that will not judge me. And sadly, there are churches that might not. We are doing our best to stand on the word of God. Jesus Christ came to this earth as an infant. And he died for this. He died for this. We have to take it seriously. And the word from Jesus, he came, who came to this world, it was for this purpose, to give his life and to remove this curtain, this separation from God. The word that we receive today is throw off that sin. Throw off that sin that so easily entangles. People have I remember one class that uh, Julie and I were involved in, a catechism class where this lesson was taught about sin and adultery. And the next week, a young couple didn't show up. And we thought, ah, you know, that they were offended. They were hurt. But the following week, this young lady walks in. She says, I need a new name tag. I said, why? She said, well... You know, we heard that lesson and we went and got married. We had no idea. We had no idea. She said, I need a new name tag. I got a different name. We, we have people on our church council. Years ago, same story. They were convicted and they separated and they got married and God has blessed them with a family. And continues because they walk in his truth. If we know the word, we have to live the word. And when we live the word, God blesses us. He blesses us, even though we don't like it, even though it's difficult, even though we want to say, oh, you know, gee, I, I, I have to give to you, really? Or I can't do this? No, God, God blesses us when we say, yes, I'll just follow your way. He blesses us when we live his word. So we can 
let's put aside cheating and stealing. And, you know, we've had people in this church who've come out of witchcraft. They have found that God blesses us when we follow his word and they throw off that sin that so easily entangles. So I want to say to you today, if you're in some kind of temptation that's pulling you away, throw it off and throw off the sin that so easily entangles and fix your eyes on Jesus this morning. Do you see him? Do you see him in the manger as a helpless little infant? Do you see him growing up into a man who took on a cross and gave his life? Do you see him on the cross making a way for you to beat the barrier of sin and receive eternal life? Can you see it this morning? Can you? We want to pray this morning and we close our every second Sunday with prayer and invite people to these altars to draw near to God, what we just read in Hebrews chapter 12, to draw near to God with confidence if you have a physical problem, if, you ha- if you're in need of healing. We want to open these altars, and that's what we're going to do. But I want to say to you, if you're dealing with a besetting sin and you need help in throwing it off, make your way to these altars where you can draw near to God with confidence. He's not going to condemn you. He'll say to you what he said to the woman caught in the very act of adultery. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Come and get washed. Repent before him. And he will receive you. And you can come and no one's going to know. Because we have many who are coming with infirmities, physical problems. No one's going to know. They might need, you know, you need prayer for your knee. But I'm dealing with a besetting sin. Come and get prayed for. Deal with it this morning. Jesus came in a manger for that. That's the Christmas story. He died so that you could draw near in his name. Come with a sincere heart as the word directs, a repentful heart, and you can be confident that God will receive you, not as guilty, but one who's worthy to draw near because of the blood of Jesus. As you come, and I'm going to ask our elders to come to these altars. I just want to mention a few that need prayer this morning. Tom Delano is asking us to pray for soundness of mind. Brother Tom's been, uh, uh, he was a faithful elder for many years at this church. And now because he, he has difficulty walking, he's shut in. But we keep in contact with him and he's asking for this prayer. Charlotte LaBelle's grandson, Luke, he's in the army. He's just been sent to Afghanistan I want to pray for him. And Don Toss' son, Chad, his heart is only, functioning only at 51%. We'll pray for these needs, pray over these altars, and then I want to invite you to come. And if you're in the back, you can't make it or you can't, well, just raise your hand. Raise your hand. Someone will come and pray with you. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus came to make a way for us to make a way for us to your throne of grace that we can draw near to you, God, our creator, with a sincere heart, confidence, Lord, confident that you'll hear, confident that you'll receive. So we pray over Brother Tom and Charlotte's grandson and Chad Toth, Lord, and any in this house that need prayer right now, Lord, we just pray your great provision. But Lord, we pray too for the elders here at these altars, Lord, that they'd be open conduits of the blessing of our creator, God. Your word says, if any are sick, let them call for the elders of the church who will anoint with oil and pray the prayer of faith. These elders are prepared, Lord. Use them. 
Use them, God, as channels of blessing for physical infirmities, Lord, for spiritual difficulties. For any that might be in the throes of a physical problem, they need a real touch, Lord, we just pray you'd use these elders. And God, any that might have a temptation they're dealing with or they're in a besetting sin, Lord, we just pray they'd come. Thank you, Jesus. We commit this time to your grace. Amen.